What about the uh, the Calvinist response to that, which would be something along the lines of, well, yeah, but God has to first give you that will. God sure. has to sort of open your heart and your eyes to see, and then once he does that, then you will, you desire to yeah. come, you choose to come, mm-hmm. but God must first enable that. Sure, that sounds like a game of uh, divine stop hitting yourself. <laughs> 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 How's that game work? Yeah. So he just grabs your wrist and, and uses your own hand to smack you in the head and says, uh-huh. stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what it sounds like to me in that there's this appeal to do a thing while he is the, you know, puppet master pulling the strings. It, it's just like, why why go through this this exercise? Why say such a thing as if you, you know, if you would only come uh-huh. to me, you know, uh-huh. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where we are seeking to recover faith by recovering the faith. I'm Kent, and this is Nathan. Yep. We normally do series, but we're doing these one-off episodes now in between series. Yeah. And last week, we talked about spiritual warfare, and this week, we're talking about something that seems to be unrelated. Um, <laughs> it's we, about it's, God. It's Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's related to God in the Bible. Uh, the Christian life, and it's this topic of predestination. Mm-hmm. Some people care a lot about it. Uh, it's important to them. It's part of their theology. It's an important part of their theology. It makes a lot of sense to them. Kind of brings the Bible together for them. Other people uh, find it to be incomprehensible or illogical, so or immoral, or even immoral. This is true. This is true. So it's a, it's a controversial subject. And at least in my life at different times, and it has been really important to me or really important in the circles that I ran in. So we're going to ask Nathan what his take on it is. Um, maybe we start with a definition of predestination, how it's normally understood. Not like, what's your view, Nathan? But right. like, what do people think is that, that predestination is? I'm going to take a stab at that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, why don't, why don't you tell us? You said it's been a thing in your life, you know? Give us your oh, well, history okay, with, so it, with predestination I or says whatever. Predestination yeah, you lead for out, most man. of us is associated with Reformed theology, Calvinism. Uh, it's this idea that God has predestined, has in advance destined some to eternal life. And depending on the group you're in, maybe he has also even destined in advance others to eternal damnation. Mm-hmm. So he's made a choice as to who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. And then what plays out in human history is the, the fulfillment of his plan made in advance for each individual. He, God has made the choice for them. Yeah. They don't make the choice for themselves. God has made the choice for them. And if God has made the choice for them, then God arranges things in history so that they will come to believe. And some Calvinists or Reformed theologians will work harder than others maybe to somehow explain how the free will is preserved. I've noticed that. Some, some Calvinists seem to be concerned about the problem that arises which is to say what's left of human agency, what's left of human will, human Mm -hmm. choice. That is a problem. It's a philosophical problem. It's a moral problem because it it raises the question, how then can we be held responsible for our lives, for our choices? How can God justly judge us? These are also teachings of the Bible, that we're moral agents, that we're responsible, that we will be judged according to our deeds. These are also teachings in the Bible. So some Calvinists try to 
some Calvinists kind of blow that off and say, well, you know, who are you to judge how God can judge and why God can judge and right. uh, who, are you, who are you to raise these philosophical questions? Right. If the yeah. Bible teaches predestination, then that's all there is to it. Accept yeah. it. Deal with it. Others are more sensitive and say, you know, we need to really figure out a way to have both predestination and free will. And so I've seen efforts made to try to explain how you can, how God also preserves free will. I think in the end, my opinion is uh, sort of the conclusion I drew after after some number of years is that there really is no way to resolve the two uh, fully. If you're going to have predestination, you're not going to have uh, a full-throated free will, a human, human agency, human responsibility. Um, well... There you go. There you that's go. my that's, that's my initial take. take. Yeah. So you never had any. You never settled in a camp. You never like argued one side against. Oh, the I other. did. No, there oh, was a time. On. Yeah, no, give me for sure. Give me. There was a long Bring period it. of time where I argued for predestination. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And clearly, well, why would you well do such and a thing? clearly the Bible speaks of <laughs> predestination and election. So, mm-hmm. I guess the reason that I did that is because I saw that it was in Scripture, and it and I perceived those who didn't believe in predestination to be those who didn't read their Bibles. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of what what normally plays out is people start reading their Bibles, they get into Bible study, and they start to discover these teachings, or they discover teachers who teach on these teachings, and they say, "Well, it's in the Bible, mm-hmm. so what else is there to do but believe it?" Yeah, because a lot of times you don't you don't get. Um, well, I think the uh, the free will camp sometimes will offer. Uh, unsatisfactory explanations of, of Bible passages and p- potentially. Mm-hmm. And so people will say, well, I'm not in that camp. I'm with the Bible believers. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the Bible teaches predestination, so I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. But the Bible also refutes predestination. <laughs> and so that's the difficulty, uh, especially when you, when you get to things like, um, you know, Jesus repeated uh, call whoever will may come. Right, so that seems to suggest that there's a will there that mm-hmm. Jesus is asking us to activate and then to point in His direction. So those sayings don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. That kind of invitation, especially like in the Book of Matthew, there's a lot of of this kind of you know open appeal. Mm-hmm. Come and, and come and join me if you if you so desire. Then be in my number. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, the Calvinist response to that, which would be something along the lines of, well, yeah, but God has to first give you that will. God sure. has to sort of open your heart and your eyes to see, and then once he does that, then you will, you desire to yeah. come, you choose to come, mm-hmm. but God must first enable that. Sure, that sounds like a game of uh, divine stop hitting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> How's that game work? Yeah. So he just grabs your wrist and, and uses your own hand to smack you in the head and says, uh-huh. stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what it sounds like to me in that there's this appeal to do a thing while he is the, you know, puppet master pulling the strings. It, it's just like, why, why go through this, this exercise? Why say such a thing as if you, you know, if you would only come uh-huh. to me, you know. Uh-huh. Like I, I want to, I want to maintain the appearance of free will. Yeah. So I'm going to say, choose me, come to me. Yeah. Uh, even though I know there is no such thing as free will. Right. Yeah. And so 
that it it just it's an odd it's an odd way to look at a passage like that. Mm-hmm. It really does make it some sort of a odd formality. And if that's the case, is God ashamed of predestination? Does he have a PR problem with it? You know? Yeah. Um, well, pr- presumably, yeah, he's yeah, he's got to. Well, yeah, I think the, I think that we all know it's a problem because of moral accountability. We have to have some agency, some legitimate agency in our choices if we're going to be legitimately accountable right. for our choices. Or and not. Clearly, yeah. the, biblical, clearly the biblical worldview is that we, are, we have moral accountability. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I suppose that's really much more fundamental than a few verses about predestination. It you seems know? to be. It's really yeah. like um, the big picture. Yeah. God is the judge. <laughs> Right. And we are morally accountable to him. Right. Yeah. And and yet in Romans 9, Paul seems to take that up and say, well, you know, then why does he still judge us? Who could resist his will? And he says, eat it. <laughs> that's his, well, that's a passage that I, that is a passage, back, right? that's a passage that actually won me over <laughs> yeah. to the Calvinist viewpoint. So maybe you can help us with that today. <laughs> right. But there's a tension and it's not just in our sensibility it's not between the Bible believers and those who aren't. It's those who are looking at this side of the Bible, you know. It's heads and those who are looking at the tails side of the Bible. Um, and so that's the, that's the difficulty, I think, with it is that, <clears throat> and I think that there are strong and compelling Bible passages that um, call for us to use our volition. And um, if, if those are just some sort of formality is, you know, again, is God doing a PR campaign? Um, also, the implications that come along, you know, tulip, for those who don't know, what's, do you tulip know, is, remember what that yeah, is? Yeah, tulip okay. is sort of, I don't, this is not Calvin's creation, but his followers <clears throat> have sort of summed up the five points of Calvinism, so to speak, under this acronym tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, Perseverance of the saints. And there's a certain logical chain to it. There's uh-huh. a beauty to it. There's a symmetry, mm-hmm. uh, simplicity to it. Yeah. So we're totally depraved. Do you think that's we're why so many Dutch are reformed? Because of the... Uh, Tulips. <laughs> <laughs> there's some kind of correlation there, right? Yeah. Uh, that's why the Irish are Catholic is because of the shamrocks. Yeah, you oh, just need well, a plant. Why they're you need a plant. <laughs> what we need is a good is a good plant. We need a free will our, plant. Our theology too. Yeah, I don't know if it's free will. I honestly, I, I don't know if I would advocate for free will even. I mean, entirely. Yeah, because well, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's maybe we'll not the on. argument. We're not yeah. trying to take the Ar- so-called Arminian side of the debate here today. Well, not yeah, you know, Arminius. I don't think was entirely free will like right. what we think. But anyway, right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so total depravity. We're we're incapable of responding. We're we're in rebellion. We're dead in sins. Yeah. So therefore, we need unconditional election. God yeah. has God has chosen unconditionally, freely, to save in individuals. Yeah. Uh, and then limited atonement. Christ died only for those individuals. He died. Right. Only why would for he? Them. Why would he die for somebody that's going to hell? Irresistible right? grace is what brings them. Sure. From death to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the preaching of the gospel, God calls them out. God calls them like Lazarus out of the tomb from death to life. Yeah. Um, those who were unconditionally elected. Right. Perseverance of the saints is God's preserving grace. That God keeps them in faith so that they will be saved in the end. Yeah. 
you know, you talking about irresistible grace just really woke up in me this uh, <clears throat> reading that I did. And this guy, John Oman, yeah. we, you and I, I talked, yeah, about, talked it. about him. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote a book. Uh, he was ironically, interestingly, uh, a Presbyterian um, theologian who started wrestling with the idea of irresistible grace. <laughs> He's like, it's being irresistible is not gracious. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. giving giving people no option out isn't a very gracious thing to do. You know, he kind of saw that as a contradiction in terms mm-hmm. and began to, you know, think that through. And so if you really want your head to hurt, uh, I recommend reading John Oman mm-hmm. because he does wrestle with these concepts uh, and, I, and very effectively, I think. Um, and it's intellectually challenging but also satisfying his work is somebody needs to do an update maybe just to come up with the message maybe mm-hmm. eugene peterson there you go would do that for us <laughs> he died dad gum what did he do that for uh oh well we need somebody else to update it somebody to do the gen z john omen you know maybe rob bell would do it Puts lots of margins and forward slashes <laughs> in between it. Yeah, lots of spaces. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah lots, lots of, of that white space for our poor little brains. Right. Um, yeah, so let's talk predestination. Talk about what the heck's going on here. Where did Paul get this whole notion? And we mentioned, I think we've touched on this several times, that Paul, we give Paul too much credit and too little credit. We give him too much credit, and then we see him as like an Old Testament prophet. He does not seem to have had that experience very often. As a matter of fact, the only kind of direct revelation he seems to have gotten was one, Jesus showed up and was like, here I am. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be the dominant and the primary thing. That seemed to have changed everything for him and been the well from which he drew all of his insights, his meaningful insights, that plus his knowledge of the scripture. Meaning, uh, meaning that he had this encounter with Christ, which showed him that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. And then based on that experience, he went back and reread his Bible, yeah. his Old Testament, and understood it in a fresh light. Yeah. But he was reflecting. He was thinking. Yeah. He wasn't just receiving words and ideas directly yeah. from God. These things he wrote to us, like in Romans, were um, reflections upon the Old Testament. Yes. Yeah, most, mostly, largely, yeah. Or just uh, thinking through the implications of the fact that Messiah has come, he's died for our sake, he's risen again, that there's that there's information, wisdom to be gained from that those truths, and that's been our contention all along. Um, so Paul, you know, what we see in the record that we have of Paul's interactions after that with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit are things like, uh-uh. You know? <laughs> it's like he wanted to go into Bithynia and the spirit said, uh-uh. right. you know, I mean, or Jesus is like, it's cool, man. You know, Jesus is like, you're fine. You know, just uh, you'll have to you'll have to stay on the boat. Everybody got to stay on the boat. Uh-huh. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, of, you know, of these of this discourse. And so what we when we read Paul, what we what I think oftentimes happen when I say we, I, it's, who, who is that, right? Who's the antecedent to that pronoun? Um, <clears throat> what many people do is that they think when they read the New Testament that they are reading dictation from God, and that's just not the case. 
Uh, and so they read it in isolation from the circumstances, from the context of what he's written, his own stated agenda. They read it as a theological treatise. And I think that they try to make these letters do and say things that were never meant. And Paul had the freedom to say, you know, I think this is true. I think this is right. As he's writing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't give us a ton of confidence that this is some kind of dictation, but that he's saying, you know, he claims that God has given him wisdom, has given him insight. Mm -hmm. And those gifts are they're available to people today. I'm not saying we can write the Bible or whatever. I think God sovereignly has superintended this text and you said sovereign sovereign and uh, god is sovereign <clears throat> he is uh and we'll get to that mm -hmm. <laughs> um but yeah that that he's been the one to do this uh so i i read the scripture and, and i see this hand behind its crafting and it's stitching together and everything but it's not dictation and so you know when we read something like Ephesians 1, and I think this is where Calvin and, and maybe Augustine, and I, and I don't want to pick on Augustine, one, because I, I haven't read his stuff enough, and two, because everything I've read of him has just been this amazing genius insight, so I don't want to pick on him too much. But I do know that a lot of what Luther and Calvin believed about predestination came from Augustine, or by way of Augustine. And so, you know, I, I feel like I'm, you know, going up to some giant and kicking him in the shins mm -hmm. and waiting for him to just clobber me by picking on Augustine. But um, it does seem that the attempt to take Ephesians 1, for instance, and build an overarching theology is fraught from the beginning. Because the Ephesian letter is so pastoral, and it has such a clear and stated purpose, that um, whatever we glean about God's saving us and his plan to save us from be the beginning of time and all of that has to be read with and against the backdrop of Jew and Gentile together in one body. That is the stated purpose of the Ephesian letter. Okay, and so <clears throat> whatever, whatever we read about predestination, because that's where we get this word, and it uh, occurs a couple of other places, but this is an extended treatise on predestination. Mm -hmm. Let's go, let's read on down to um, uh, 12. <laughs> read, through, 12. read through 12 oh and then we're going to go and stop. Okay. Okay. And, you know, hey, if you, guys, if you guys are out there and you just can't listen to like eight verses of the Bible, All right. All right. right, you can do it. Just take that thing, that little wheel, and say 1.5 speed, you'll get through it, man. There you go. Yeah. Now, since we're going all the way through 12, I'm going to back up and start with all right, three. do it. Oh, Pray okay. <laughs> okay. We're going to get the all context. Right. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. <laughs> okay. okay. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, Mm. in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Amen. Oh, that's good. Good stuff. Yeah. So as a Calvinist, as a former Calvinist, Mm -hmm. how do you read that? Um, Well, first of all, I'm just seeing, whoa, Paul teaches predestination. He does, yeah. There it is several times over. And, you know, God planned it in advance that we would be saved. Yeah. He predestined us. Mm. So clearly we are predestined. And that, that, that sort of just settles it, right? Right, yeah. Let's go home. Turn this thing yeah. off. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a Christian not just because I believe in Jesus Christ, but also yeah. because God predestined that I would be a Christian. Right, right. Yeah. So the simple, under, the simple understanding of, of, of the Christian faith, which I had before, is now made richer and fuller. And I now see that it was actually God's plan from the beginning. Yes, yeah, and and because He wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, that there's this this refrain according to the purpose of the will, according to of His good pleasure, that there, <clears throat> and this is what's emphasized, I think, especially in this kind of counterpoint to, to Catholicism, um, where you know, at least the way it was perceived by the reformers that the Catholics were teaching some sort of a merit-based salvation. And this is the silver bullet. This is the death knell to um, works-based salvation. And that is that you were chosen before you'd done anything. And, and right. he makes a point of that in Romans 9, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that it wasn't on the basis of anything you'd done. You weren't even here. You didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is grace all the way down. Uh, and I think that's why it's a very critical doctrine to people who believe in Reformed theology, because... If it's not, if this isn't true, then you open the door to a works-based salvation, a merit-based salvation. If nothing else, that God has to accept me because I believed, and so that ought to be good enough, right? Um, that I've somehow merited by that, that I could boast in that, right? Even this quality that I have, which is I believe the gospel, Yeah. even that is a gift. That was, yeah. It, but it, yeah, God enabled us. it. And God yeah. planned it, and yeah. he determined whether or not I would have that quality. Right. So that's what's, I think that's what's affirmed is that people are so um, intent on eliminating the human component to salvation that they're willing to accept the dark side of the moon here, and that is that God also predestined many people to suffer for eternity. Mm-hmm. God created them for this purpose, even. Right, right. I mean, we have to. That they would be that. a backdrop, and in some, you know, that they would be the, the backdrop, the dark backdrop for the bright, uh, shining glory of the gospel. Right, and yeah. the gospel would shine brighter because of the dark backdrop. Right, yeah, and and I, and I get that. I mean, I understand that. At some point, we we have to not apologize for God, right? God's God, and he can do what he wants to do, that Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to answer to us whatever our moral objections. However, there are some moral objections that are harder to get past than others, and one of those is God created most conscious beings to torture them forever. That's harder. Right, right, because (laughs) so, and, and and you can't come back at that and say, well, but they've chosen their own fate, because on this system they haven't 
Right. God chose it. Right. Right. He full well. He created them knowing that they would suffer forever. And he did it for his own glory. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Because, you know, and that's fine. Well, and the, logic, <clears throat> the argument goes, and there's a reference to this from Romans 9. He did it to display the glory of his wrath. Right. And not merely the glory of his grace, but the yeah. glory of both his wrath and his grace. And his right. grace in contrast to his wrath. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we don't, most of the time, I, wrath isn't something that we celebrate. I can't mm-hmm. think of a, a time where we're like, man, that guy just went off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, that was awesome. Like, he was wrecking stuff. I mean, you know, it was just like, I, no one was standing. Yeah, maybe we think this is a powerful person, but we don't think, we don't celebrate the fact that he just lost his cool. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not like, man, that guy's a hothead. That's awesome. Way to go. I've never seen anybody with a rage problem like that guy. And, and again, we don't judge God like we would judge humans. And God, you know, has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Um, but it doesn't seem like much of a praiseworthy um, character trait. And it seems that if we're made in the image of God, that we can at least recognize praiseworthy character traits. Um and so that you get into a conundrum there, um, and and we'll talk, I guess, more about that if we get if we get to Romans. So you're 9. saying you got issues with predestination, Nathan? Well, I don't, I and don't. I, I think with the reformed <clears throat> understanding, right? The Calvinistic understanding of predestination, and right. you're saying there's another way to understand this passage, and yes. these verses, and these words, right? And and that's why I had you read through verse 12 because um, notice that the uh, pronoun here, the pronouns, uh, because those are important, right, um, are, is we, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, he chose us and we. So we've got first person pronoun, first person plural pronouns throughout. In him, we were also chosen, right? Mm-hmm. He made us. We, we might be to the praise of his glory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who is uh, we? Right. Who is we? And that, and, and so when we read it, we think, well, it's Paul and his readers, but it's not because you get to verse 13. Go ahead. Oh, mm-hmm. and you also, I see what you're doing there, Nathan. Uh-huh. He set, set you up. He set yeah. us up. Yeah. He continues, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There we go again, the praise of his glory. Now, at what point were these people included or in this plan of God to the praise of his glory? When they heard and believed. What? What, John Calvin? <laughs> Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> it does seem like maybe a strange thing for him to say, having said so much in the preceding verses about predestination. Yeah. For him to say they were included when they heard the message. And when you, when you believed. believed. Right. So there's this moment. This moment when they were included was when they heard and believed. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and we can't say, well, that's incidental or whatever, because it's in contrast that there's a change in the pronouns. There's the how we were included, how you were included. Right. We were included previously, right? Uh, we, were, we were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. And when you heard it, you were included. Uh-huh. Okay. So. okay wait, hang on. I want to make sure that everybody's following the point you're making here. He, he, he's been saying we and us, mm-hmm. we were predestined. 
Then he goes and, and, and he turns to his readers, his hearers, and he says, you were included when you believed. Yes. And you're saying that, that what's the point? Well, what's the point you're making? It seems that there's a contrast. Okay. That remember that the point of, of Ephesians is not theology, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. it's ecclesiology. Okay. Uh, yeah. That the point right. of it is to is to really establish, and this is Paul's primary concern in everything he writes. The whole Roman letter is about Jew and Gentile together. Okay. He's like, look. This is about salvation. God's working out salvation. I proclaim the gospel, but my specific calling is Jew and Gentiles together, mm-hmm. right? To call the nations, but to include them in Israel. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, you can't have a separate Gentile church uh, if you're including them in Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so <clears throat> he's saying, when you heard it. So, so there's this distinction made between we and you now that we know that the ephesian church or i it probably wasn't the ephesian church but we'll get to some we'll get that later um that this church in the region of ephesus let's say Mm -hmm. uh, probably the laodicean church specifically is that they're gentile we realize that this is a part of the gentile mission that they're primarily gentile people so as he's writing to them he's saying we 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 and then he says and you Okay, now there is this, uh, if you get over to Romans 11, this idea of the olive branches, right? Mm -hmm. And that there was this pulling of the, you know, the the branches that were broken off because of unbelief. And then there were branches that were grafted in. Mm -hmm. Okay, now if, if, if those broken off branches, if we were to consider those broken off branches before that moment of unbelief before they were broken off what would we say would we say that they were excluded or that they were included before they were broken off yeah. they were included right and how far how how far previous were they included right they had always been included <laughs> right because there's a continuity in that tree is it possible that god chose the tree from eternity past. <laughs> you know? The tree is we? Yeah. Yeah. And that the tree has been chosen from eternity. Like, God wasn't like, I wonder which which desert Bedouin I'm going to pick out. Mm-hmm. You know? Any meeny, miny Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there is this eternal plan that in creating the universe, that this is in the script. This is the eternal gospel. Mm-hmm. And that Israel... This nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like, well, we, we're familiar with the idea of he chose a nation. Right. right. He chose Israel out of all chosen the Chosen people. Right. And so you're extending that to he's, he's chosen the church. Mm-hmm. The church. And the, and so that's that's his predestination. That's his election. And we're familiar with yeah. the idea that he elect. The, Israel is his elect. Right. His elect nation. And then Calvinism extends that to the individuals. Right. And yeah. says that individuals are elected. Mm-hmm. For salvation, right, and it, it it's impossible to to completely separate that because obviously God can see the future; He knows who is going to believe and who isn't. Obviously, and uh, and that's I think certainly the case. 
But I, I don't think we need to follow a theological rabbit trail to say that those who believe would somehow merit salvation and therefore, because now that's a, that's a negative approach of saying, well, we certainly don't want to be like the Catholics. So here's what we believe. And it's like, really? Is that, mm, is that the case? Yeah. You know, the, the whole idea of the faith of the son is a relinquishing of this aspiration to godhood, mm-hmm. that faith is the unwork work. Right. Right. Yeah. So nobody, it, nobody who has the faith of the Son takes credit for having that. That right. that has been given to us, and that if a person truly has it, that the whole inclination to take credit for what we've done has already been mm-hmm. done away. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So yeah. it's it's nonsensical to say, well, we have to follow this all the way down, and to say because he just says, you know, he he's celebrating. You heard the gospel. You believed. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that, does he like, and he's like, high fives all around, guys. You're awesome. No, obviously they're not. Right? He did it to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> praise of his glorious right. grace. Yeah. Right. So the, I, in Ephesians, right there in the very passage that we would use to prove it, I, I think it makes it really clear that salvation is more nuanced, that there's something that God has certainly predestined, that, you know, like in Revelation, there's the mention of the eternal gospel. Mm-hmm. That God from the creation of the world and in Colossians, you know, that God created everything for Christ. So in the creation, in, in the that moment with Adam, that Adam is created, and, and we've talked about this before, as the antitype of Christ, that he's the, the photo negative of the image on which this whole creation enterprise is built. And so that's predestination. That's what's been decided, you know, that that all of creation, everything that's come to being is about this guy who came on the scene, say, you know, however long, and depending on your, your understanding of human history. So, well, let's not talk prehistory. Let's just talk the beginning of history. Okay, so let's say history did begin roughly 4,000 B.C., 5,000 B.C., recorded history. <clears throat> so... At least from that time, <clears throat> God has been working toward this. Now, he's certainly, I think, the whole creation, the whole point of creation is to bring us to this moment. But but if you're Paul and you arrive on the scene and relatively late, mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking to people who've got 1,500 years of experience with God or more, if you go all the way back to Abraham. And he's saying that this is the point. <laughs> and they're like, what, now? Why? Right? After everything that's happened, you know, after this massive exodus event, this is huge. That looks like the point, right? But but he's saying, no, that's not the point. That was all to get us to here. But if you're going to preach that kind of a gospel, and then you're going to say, and really the point is to bring all those people. Remember all those people we used to exclude and we couldn't hang out with them? We certainly couldn't go to their house for dinner, but now you have to be with them? Is God just making this up as he goes along? You know, uh, you know, is he just spinning a wheel? And and so to root this, and we we that's what I'm I guess I'm contending for is that that Paul's material on predestination is is really an apologetic in a way, in the sense that here's something that is a relatively recent development in history. And if you go and you say, Well, you know, God's fixed it. The recent thing is the gospel being <clears throat> the gospel. preached and uh, to the Gentiles and the Gentiles yeah. coming in. Right. Or Messiah at all. You know, okay. is Messiah like plan C? Uh, you know, it's like, 
okay, plan A was that Israel would be under this law and that they would all love God. And man, it didn't work out. You know, you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and Israel asks for a king. So plan B is Saul, right? And that didn't work. So plan C is David. And that didn't go well. So plan D is Messiah, right? Um, and then we're like, well, we're in a multicultural world now. This seems kind of racist to be saying that we're the chosen people based on race. Let's let's get a little more, you know, uh, egalitarian here. Let's let's start accepting others. Let's take so this let's corporation multinational. Plan E, yeah, right, yeah. <clears throat> let's let's be a little multicultural, inclusive, you know. And and it starts to look like that. And and I think this is very similar and and it's a cautionary tale, I guess, for people who might be considering things, groups, or have come out of groups that claim Latter-day Revelation. If you say, if your story is God revealed himself to Abraham, but then everybody lost that revelation, and then God revealed himself to Moses, but then everybody lost that and, you know, mistreated it and broke it, and so God sent Jesus. And then uh, that was good for 100 years, but then it immediately went away, and now God sent Mohammed. Right. At what point do you say, but then God sent Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. you know, there's always the next guy who's coming and to fix what went wrong with the previous revelation. And, and it really begins to cast God as somebody who with no foresight, no ability to fix the problem permanently. Somebody who's just making it up as he goes along. And he's certainly not worthy of worship. Okay, remember, we're saying that this is an ultimate being. This is somebody who isn't just good, isn't just powerful. He is the eternal, be-all, end-all. Everything is, is his and under his hand. Uh, so there's a theological implication here. But Paul has to take pains to say, this isn't plan B. And it, and it really gets back to things like dispense, uh, dispensationalism, you know, what I've heard is, is that what people will say is, is that, well, Jesus came and he preached to the Jews and, and plan A was that they would accept him as their Messiah. Israel would take its place in the world and be yeah. the leader of nations and all would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, if you go through the book of John, the book of John is like, no, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension was always in the script. It's critical. It's essential. It could not have been done without that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was always plan A. God's always operating on plan A. And plan A includes human volition, though. It includes the, the choices that people are making along the way. So I was just teaching in John 12 on Sunday. And John says, even after seeing all these signs, they still would not believe. That's volition. Mm-hmm. And it says, and it was written in Isaiah, who has believed our report. And so they could not believe. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, what, which one is it? Yes, it's both, you know, and that God is writing the script. He sees what people's choices are going to be. The, those choices are folded into what is. And so he's not so much directing it as he has created this, this plan that includes human choice. And that's, a, that's a, an overarching Omni- not only omnipotent, but omniscient being. So now, this choice that people make mm-hmm. uh, that you're defending their their freedom, their volition. Yeah. Um, do you see that God enables people to believe or helps people believe that there's 
there's even a passage in John. Is it John 10? Where where am I thinking? I'm thinking that you're, you're just citing John, and yeah. I'm thinking, wait, the Calvinists, they go to John. Yeah. They have like John 8 or John 10, and they say... Uh, they, no one can come unless the Father draws them. There it is. No mm-hmm. one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Yeah. So this drawing, is this something that you think God does? Yeah, obviously. And what, and, yeah. And because you're, you're not here really uh, to defend a, an extreme version of free will. No, no. That yeah. says we don't need help. Sure, yeah. Well, and, and I, it does seem to me that, and Paul lays it out in Romans 8, and I don't know why there's a debate when, you know, in the one place where Paul gets very systematic about election, he, you know, uh, we just want to cut it off and we want to say, well, no, that, that, that's not part of it because it doesn't fit our theology. Okay, so in Romans 8, 29, he says that God predestined people to be conformed to the image of his son, but it begins with those God for new, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> this isn't some sort of a um, arbitrary choice. But remember, God is, he is omniscient. He's eternal. He's seeing the end from the beginning. It, the difficulty that we have, I think, sometimes when we talk in terms of predestination is we're thinking linear, mm-hmm. okay? And God isn't. God is seeing this person whose heart is to believe, Right? And then he's going back to the beginning of the script and he's writing the script for that person to believe. But it's that person who's going to believe their volition is involved in the predestined choice to draw them in. Okay. Uh, And this is Paul's real contention. And we'll get to that. uh, Why, why predestination, the conversation about predestination really is about Jew and Gentile together in one church. Um, it is how God, how Paul is grappling with this idea that the Gentiles have been included, but that is not plan B. Okay. Um, if the Gentiles are included as plan B, then the suggestion is God didn't know what he was doing. God tried a thing. It didn't work. People didn't go along with it. So he had to go to a different set of people. This Jew Gentile church was predestined. Right. This was, this was God's plan from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a lesser than. It's less than. The Gentiles become second string Israel. And hey, I'm glad to be there any way I can. It's just the implications both of how God values me as opposed to how he values a, you know, an ethnic Jew mm-hmm. um, and, and how God operates how he runs the world begins to be called into question if predestination isn't a thing okay so yeah uh i I think it's critically important though that we understand this this idea of of calling that god is um you know no one can come unless the father draws them and we Mm talked some about the idea of the called so in calvinism the call creates the faith right right so god so we preach the gospel and the and god calls a person to believe mm-hmm. and that call creates the faith it brings forth the response yes yeah. yeah well and i and i think um at least my understanding of it is is that the call is kind of the prevenient you know the pre-existing condition that determines whether someone's going to believe. 
that uh, from a missiological standpoint, how we, uh, an evangelistic standpoint, how we proclaim the gospel has to be with a confidence that there are people right now in this moment who, when they hear this message, something will wake up in them. Mm-hmm. And, and they will come and believe that there isn't a ton of emphasis on uh, apologetics or rhetoric mm-hmm. in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit seems to show up both in the person proclaiming the message uh, through you know, a works attending, through uh, giving them, prompting them toward the right thing to say, uh, words of knowledge. But there's also the Holy Spirit seems to be present in the hearer. So you can say, like Lydia in Scripture, it says that, you know, that, that God opened her heart mm-hmm. to believe. So there's this, this call. From a practical standpoint, we need to know that. And I think that this is what Calvinism has brought to the debate, is that um, we have to understand that we are not alone when we go to proclaim the gospel, that we mm-hmm. don't have to convince people to believe it. If we ever begin to entertain the notion that we have to convince people to believe it, we're going to begin to lower the bar. We're going to have to try to communicate the gospel in ways that are pleasing or appealing to our hearers, and that can begin to cause us to compromise the message. Or there's just a lot of pressure on us because we, yeah. have, to, we have to be really uh, good at persuasion and argumentation. Right. And not every one of us is, but every one of us is, ne- is commissioned to share the good news. Right, yeah. And, and being good at persuasion and stuff may begin to tip back into those elementary principles of the world. Uh-huh. And so yeah. we begin to undermine yeah. the gospel through our evangelistic methods. Uh, you know, and, and so now we're really in trouble. So I, I think that what Jesus tells us in John 6, um, you know, where he's, he says that they— no one can come um, unless the Father, you know, he, so he's told them stuff that's hard to hear, right? So here's an example of Jesus saying, you got to eat my skin and my muscles, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you got to drink my blood. And, and everybody's like, man, that is so messed up. It's just jacked. What are you saying, you know? And, and he's saying, don't, don't grumble, you know. Um, he, he, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard, heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one um, who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So, um, you know, Jesus is coming to bring an alien message. And what he is assuming here is, is that God has prepared some people to hear this message. That God had to be involved in their accepting the message somehow because the message is so foreign without God's help then people aren't they're just not going to it's Mm -hmm. always going to seem just too far beyond the pale that they're not going to be able to accept it and so this is a you know it's a wonderful miraculous moment but it is not based on just purely um, arbitrary decision by God that he made previously this is a this is an interplay between what he knows of the person who he has seen them to be um, the right moment in time. You know, many of the people who perhaps were there in Galilee who rejected this message uh, that Jesus has spoken became believers, I'm mm-hmm. convinced. Mm-hmm. So, later on. Later. I mean, yeah. Jesus says, hey, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Mm-hmm. So there's something, you know, he, he's saying you, you don't get it now, and he's not like, and, and so just damn you. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But you don't get it now because you haven't intersected at this moment. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. with with the message, with, with this divine appointment. And I do think that there are, are appointments through time. But that teaching, I think it just is there to help those who are proclaiming the message to know if I make it clear that those who are prepared by God will hear it. And I think our, our prayers have a lot to do with it, you know, that, that we can ask God, prepare this person's heart. I, I think that there is a condition of a person's heart based on their experiences that prepares them for it. You know, that it's not just that God arbitrarily chose somebody. But, you know, when Paul says, look around, look at your calling, when he tells the Corinthian church, you know, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are here. Look around the room, okay? You got the losers, right? Jesse Ventura wasn't wrong when he said Christianity's for losers. He, you know, that, that there's something about losers that makes them able to hear the message, doesn't it? So God, did God... Um, make them losers so they would hear probably right because there's a there is a sovereignty that god is working um and he's even using people's choices as a part of that so you know you were born out of wedlock i mean i'm not uh, yeah god god is involved in that i i don't know how else to say it but i i do think that god is sovereign you know yeah so yeah yeah sovereign a minute ago you, a few minutes ago you said sovereign and i said you said sovereign because right. i thought there's, there's there's the calvinism right the, there's the one of the key words of calvinism and you're yeah. certainly affirming the sovereignty yes. of god so there's these human conditions these human qualities the losers so to speak and these people are prepared and, and ready to uh, more ready to believe the gospel than others and so they of they they freely believe sure and nevertheless god has been involved in uh they're being that kind of person right who is prepared to believe right and i mean if it were entirely arbitrary then how would it be that paul that jesus would say it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to enter a needle's eye that there's some sort of a condition of that person you know did god curse that person with wealth Right. You know, I mean, maybe he did. You know, maybe it was because he chose them to go to hell, and he was like, "Well, you might as well have a few seconds of fun before I torture you forever." You know, uh, well, it, why is it that there are certain demographics who are more open to the gospel if it's entirely arbitrary, just based on God's choice? Right. Yeah. But we yep. know the New Testament affirms there are certain demographics. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, mm-hmm. to me, that's a profile of the one who will come, mm-hmm. of the cult. Um, it's got a part of that, sure. But it's not like he arbitrarily just said this person's going to be born and then they're going to be saved. Um, but that there are a whole host of choices that people have made, circumstances, God is certainly behind the scenes and all of that, mm-hmm. but it's not um, just this arbitrary list on both sides, you know, the the, the nice list and the naughty list, and, mm-hmm. you know, and God's decided who's going to be on which before they were ever nice or naughty. Um, so that gets me to... What's that lead you to? Well, it gets us to Romans 9. We should probably talk about okay. it. Um, um, this idea that um, God chose Jacob, right? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, uh-huh. hated him. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Why then does he still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to make his wrath and power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, and not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. There's that again. Mm-hmm. Um, so what As do you he do said, with and it? he quotes Hosea to talk about how the Gentiles are going to come in. Right, right. So because that was pre-known, right? God didn't wasn't like, well, I guess these Jews aren't going to come on board, so I guess we'll go to the Gentiles next. But uh, yeah, that he had already said that in the prophets. So what do we do with that, right? How do you... Um, how do you grapple with it? Now, you could say, well, that just is. And just like Paul, you need to shut up and accept it. And maybe we do. Uh, it's just that I'd like for us to understand it before we shut up and accept it. Uh, and, I, and I think that we've kind of, at least in some cases, people have failed to truly kind of probe into what's being said, uh, understand that connection between the Jew and Gentile and God's um, predestination in Abraham, um, which is this joining to the olive tree, right? And and so he goes into that metaphor in chapter 11, right? Now, notice this, okay? Now, after having said that, Paul reaches his point or his conclusion, okay? So we have to realize Romans 9 is not the not the point. It mm-hmm. is by way. It's a sub-point. He's on his way right, to right. somewhere, which is 10 and 11, Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And so um, here it is. Uh, and he says, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Now, does that sound like perseverance of the saints? No, it doesn't. There's, right. there's an emphasis here on the human response, right. human responsibility. Right, otherwise you will be cut off. Wait a minute, I thought I was predestined from the beginning, <laughs> right? And if they do not persist in unbelief, wait a minute, I thought they were predestined to burn in hell. They will be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, and you were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. There is in figure what Paul has said explicitly in Ephesians 1, you were added to this ancient purpose. You said at the beginning, what if God um, predestined the tree? Yes, right. And so here you are. You are put into the predestined tree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. and so, you know, and and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Okay, so let's just realize this is a mystery. When we try to systematize it and, and think we understand it and we get hooks on it, we are, we are being arrogant, man, and we're in danger. Uh, and I'm afraid we're, we're about to slander God. And we need to be careful, right? Mm-hmm. And notice this, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, etc. Okay, so here's this idea that they... They are always, the door is always open for them to repent. How can that be if all of the tulip thing Uh is running behind? Okay. Yes, God will harden our hearts. I think it's possible 
that God will orchestrate things so that the, you know, this little gang capo becomes the leader of the gang uh, and commits all this horrific, horrific crime so that when he repents, everyone is astonished and amazed that God is able to rescue this chief of sinners. Mm -hmm. And I think Paul is the chief of sinners understood that, that it wasn't something that it was like all this happened in spite of God's plan, but because of and in support of even the worst things. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to keep in mind, you cannot. So God says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Okay. So the, the presumption there, I can't show you mercy if you deserve um, deliverance and kindness and goodness. If you're a good person, if you're not a sinner, I can't show you mercy. Now, if you deserve destruction and punishment, whose obligation is it for me to show you mercy, right? Am I obligated to show you mercy? Like you're, you're, you're found guilty, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if I, if I'm in a position to show you mercy, then it's my choice. Now, if I don't, do you have a reason to complain? No, right? If part of your punishment is to just go and um, go back to your gang wearing a monitor and show me where all of them are, right? Mm -hmm. So that I can find the rest of them. Is that, am I being somehow unjust? Mm -hmm. Right? What, what if you go back and you commit further crimes as a part of leading me to the others? Am I unjust? No, right? See, this is the kind of thing that he's talking about. Pharaoh, you can't harden something that's not hard. Okay? And, and that's the idea, is, is that Pharaoh, because as you read in the Exodus, there's sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Mm -hmm. And God, I don't think, is sitting there going, whoa, 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 making Pharaoh's heart hard. I think he's putting him in circumstances where, you know, he's not hitting him with the full weight of his punitive wrath. Mm -hmm. He's giving, you know, one little, one little sign here that his magicians can duplicate. That's how you harden somebody's heart. You give them an opportunity to resist and to defy you. Mm -hmm. And then you give them another opportunity. That's how you harden someone's heart. Not you just reach in and you just squeeze mm -hmm. and, and you prohibit them from, from repenting. You have to have a hard-hearted person. And that hard-hearted person, if they're going to change, it will only be because you were merciful. Did you owe them that? You did not. That's how I understand this. Mm. Okay, Nathan, thank you. And now we're out of time, so we probably haven't answered everyone's questions, but this gave us something to think about. This was good. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've got questions, you can email us at discussion at, at recoverfaith.org. Recoverfaith Thanks, everyone. See you next time.